Was I a simple machine? I'd have more leverage, more pull. I could screw with their, theirness better. I could make it plain. Their intention. But complex is what you call a euphemism. A lexical dust cloud. Complex as in, I had me a complex about my nature being opposite. Complex as in, their reasons for needing me to have an opposite nature are complex. Complex as in, prison industrial, etc., etc. That is a snippet from Fodder, the improvised album by poet Douglas Kearney and musician Val Gentil. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio, broadcast from the Mojave Desert. I'm Sara Ortiz. And I'm Erica Vital Lazar. You came back. We didn't scare you off? Not yet. We'll see what this episode brings. What were the risks for you, Sara, involved in taking on Black Mountain Radio? Well, you know, there there are always risks involved when taking on something new, something that you don't have much experience doing. And I would say especially so when it's something creative like this audio project. And for our team especially, we we've all been pushing our boundaries in many, many ways. So it's it's fun, but it's it definitely has its challenges. It's risky, absolutely. <laughs> yes, it is. And not to mention there's a substantial level of vulnerability in hanging out with you, Erica, in this in this recording studio. And there's also a risk of getting to know too much, getting too close. That means that we will be accountable in some way and that we will have to accept the failure or the victory or that ultimately we will have to think different and therefore do things differently. Mm. Or God is forbid, with that new knowledge, uh, we just might have to suspend our comfortable places of judgment. That really resonates with me. Risk can certainly lead to failure, which can then in turn lead to judgment. And that's intimidating. It's daunting. And sometimes we just have to let go. Yes, letting go and allowing new knowledge in, new experience in. It's part of the winning side mm. of the risk. The slogan for over a decade here was what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Some folks might be surprised to learn that that no longer is the slogan here. Back in 2020, one might suspect weary of the salacious associations. The Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority shifted the slogan to what happens here only happens here. One could say both are true. When it comes to raising children in Las Vegas, and this is something I think that those who are non-Las Vegans actually intuit, and it is the driving force behind that question, how exactly do we raise children here? To do so is, quite frankly, a risky prospect. I admit, I was once a little guilty of thinking so myself. I've raised two sons here. Who are great and amazing human beings. Thank you. I rather like them myself. <laughs> but when those questions come, those questions tend to focus on the risk involved. What is the impact on the kids that you raise here? Yes, many people who live here are often asked the question, do you live in a casino? Did you grow up in a casino? Were you raised in a casino? <laughs> As if it's only the strip that exists in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> or did you gamble as a kid? Yeah. Have you ever won big? You know, that one story that pops up among the many others that doesn't involve the big win mm. may just involve the flip side of that, which is losing big. Yeah. And so that's the question that is often not asked. Mm. You're not often asked, have you ever risked it all? No one really wants to pose that question or know that story, it's not necessarily a sexy one. Yeah, that's so true. Attorney David Figler actually did grow up not in a casino, but near the famous Las Vegas Strip and with a casino worker for a father. 
He left the city at the age of 16, and when he returned with a law degree seven years later, he also had the realization that there was more to gambling than his own experiences with it. Today, his practice has a major focus on those who gamble in unhealthy ways. Gambling, of course, is the main industry in in Nevada, and it's omnipresent here in Las Vegas. As some form of gambling has expanded to almost every state in America, it's vital to understand the impact on communities, both the good and the bad, as seen through individual stories like those of David and his clients. Yes, the seemingly mundane escapes that we all take to relieve ourselves of the pressures of everyday living, while they can combine with our unique histories and chemistries in unexpected ways, and that can happen in any town, any hamlet, city, or burg in America. I not only grew up in Las Vegas, I grew up immersed in its gambling culture. The apartment complex where we lived until I was 13 shared a block wall with the Riviera Hotel and Casino. My father walked to his job, which was dealing cards at the Sahara Hotel. Because I spent so much time in those casinos, I remember the interior of all those joints better than any of the parks, libraries, roller skating rinks, movie theaters, or arcades that were also part of my life. We'd go to casinos for dinners, for shows, to pick up my dad from work, to track down my dad when he didn't come home from work, to meet up with visiting friends and family, or just the hang in and around while my parents gambled Mom, mostly bingo. Dad, mostly craps. Vivid childhood memories. But I have other memories, too, of my parents discussing gambling. I recall those as being really loud. Scream fests, actually. To the point where I had trained myself to quickly fall asleep on first scream, or at least try to more loudly think about anything else. When my dad won, he was lauded as the greatest hunter and gatherer in the city. Sometimes stacks of cash would be spread out on the tables. Invariably though, the celebration would devolve. It was, of course, worse when he lost. Then, my mom would chide him as a fool who put us all at risk. Those talks lasted well into the night. And when on occasion my dad disappeared for extended periods, there was never much doubt where he was. And the solo screaming was aimed at the walls, ricocheting into oblivion. Now, if all this sounds frantic, it was. Just not obvious to me, because despite these emotional fluctuations, my parents were good at making everything seem more normal. Dad's benders aside, my parents never missed any of my recitals, award ceremonies, parent-teacher conferences, or Cub Scout outings. We never went hungry, though we had more than a healthy amount of impractical meals in casinos. Shrimp cocktails, prime rib the size of a small pony, and cream pies galore, all comped by the pit boss. Mom got adept at balancing the unbalanceable ebb and flow of winnings and losses, and Dad always had a backup paycheck coming in to keep the family afloat. We were never evicted, and to my knowledge, they never stole as so many problem gamblers do. No one injured themselves or, to my knowledge, had those sort of dark thoughts. Still, 
as I came to realize that what I considered normal was not everyone's normal. I knew I had to leave my hometown to experience other ways of living, to do something reputable like law school, to get far away from the tumultuous world of gambling. Now in my 30th year of law practice, my parents long passed away. I find myself immersed in lives impacted by gambling anew and normal is the last word I'd use to describe it. So why don't you start, Nan, by telling me your name, and then why don't you tell me how we met? My name is Nan. I'm a person in recovery from problem gambling. I'm 58 years old. And uh, the first time I met you, I was incarcerated. I was starting, it was in my first year of a four to 10 And uh, I had called and asked to see if I could hire you about a law I'd heard after I came to prison that involved problem gambling. Once I got into it, I pretty much figured out that you didn't get the appropriate treatment from the court that the law said that someone in your position should have. I remember you asked me if I could find out more to see if we could bring the matter back before the judge who sentenced you to prison for a period of time between four and 10 years. And then we embarked upon that adventure together. In addition to Nan, I know and represent many people who have committed very serious criminal offenses that would have never have happened but for a verifiable psychological condition that puts them at grave risk. People with disrupted executive functioning, people who risk more than money when they gamble, people who stop seeing money as money, but just a means of escape. People like my parents who went a step beyond Gambling was something that was a fun thing that we'd go out and do with my mother-in-law. Done it for years. It was fun. It was structured. There was very little money to play with. And I stuck to that. As the years went by, life changed. Things changed. You're raising a blended family. The kids are getting older. Life just takes hold. Things get harder. My parents had became ill. There was a lot of traveling back and forth with that. I realized that's where the crack in the foundation began, was realizing I could lose my rocks, which are my parents. And so gambling became an escape. And then it became the desire to do it more than just two hours on a Friday night. How how much were you gambling at your peak? Thousands. Thousands that I was fully aware of in the, the moment, but not until I ever went and got that statement that was printed out. Did I ever see a true figure of a year's worth of gambling coin in and coin out was over a million dollars. That was this sickening. Most of my legal career has involved advocating for those without a voice, helping the indigent, challenging the processes and harsh consequences of a problematic criminal justice system. But since I met Nan, I've begun to question whether having legalized gambling is worth the risks, despite it being responsible for so much of our state's revenue. We have a phrase, our brains are hijacked. And so what was a normal way of thinking is no longer a normal way of thinking. Sitting in front of a machine, I was no longer anyone's mother. I was no longer anyone's employee. I was no longer anyone's wife. I was literally connected to that machine. And it was, it was just a place I could sit that was me and only me. And the money going in, it was what was needed to continue to play. The guilt was so great. The lies were so great. The depth of which I was digging myself, um, burying myself in a hole, knowing that someday this had to stop, only knowing I couldn't. Nan should have never gone to prison, but I get it. There was a lot of money involved and angry victims. But learning about the explicit details of Nan's experience in prison 
it is painfully and tragically clear that none of that matters. That ultimately, our laws need to be re-examined to be mindful of helping people with mental challenges, addictions, and their own unique circumstances. And when it comes to the outcomes and impact of gambling as it relates to criminal justice, Nevada is a real mixed bag. And as more and more states come to gambling, the same questions will arise. The amount that I am charged with that I'm paying restitution on is a half a million dollars. And um, I will never be able to pay that back in my lifetime. As hard as I try, as much as I want to, it'll never be paid back. And um, that's an insane amount of money. And the realization of that figure very hard to understand that I'm associated with that kind of debt that came from theft. It's just, I can't. I even understand the resistance to a gambling diversion law in a state where it is important to have as much gambling as possible and where talk of consequence is virtually taboo. I'm proud of my work in helping establish the gambling court that in part needed to come into being to accommodate its first participant, Nan. I couldn't be happier that more and more individuals are being admitted into it now that it exists and the diversion law has been revitalized. But I'm worried too. As states tighten their budgets and some expand gambling options to fill monetary gaps, funds for problem gambling are likely to be some of the first to be cut. Nevada is already below the national average. I'm worried that the positive trend of the casino industry working harder towards responsible gambling efforts loses importance when profits are again foremost to their bottom line. But I'm worried most of all that people are still getting caught up in a system indifferent to the pathway of how they got there. That traditional risk-reward, crime and punishment models are absolutely obsolete. That problem gamblers especially prone to mischaracterization as simply having greedy ways or lacking personal responsibility, get ground up in the bigger system. A system focused on the size of the financial crime more than the human behind it. Problem gambling um, diagnosis doesn't define the individual. We're so much more than the diagnosis. And um, there's some really beautiful people that had an addiction that it took us across a moral line and to spend the time in prison that some people are spending because of this addiction. Good people who are now sitting waiting just to get out to start their treatment. We're talking years. It's hard to understand the guilt that I'm here and they're still there is even hard because this is something everyone should have at least the advantage to have. Not everyone has to go to prison. Not everyone deserves to go to prison because it is a diagnosable disease and these are good people. I have found three women who we've all are here because of our crime which resulted from gambling. So this law keeps being brought up. Why didn't any of us get this chance? As a Vegas kid, I finally understand that while anything but normal, my upbringing prepared me to be where I am right now. In a city that can bet on itself to do better. Las Vegas is a place that will always be different. But against all stereotypes, I'm committed to it also being a place of thoughtfulness, compassion, and care. Nan continues to work with those who suffer from problem gambling addictions. David continues to advocate and also perform. 
Erica, I'm curious to know what have you been doing to practice escape this past year? Well, we were talking about judgment briefly earlier, so don't Mm -hmm. judge me, please. I'm not going to judge you. (laughs) I often lament that I was born too late to truly benefit from some of those trips recommended by Timothy Leary and Carlos Castaneda. That's an escape that I (laughs) would have liked to take (laughs) part in. But in a very real way, I I tune in with my comedic yoga or my kundalini communities with the singing bowl or gong, and I travel. Or I sit within the vibration of the djembe uh, with my sisters on the west side as they lead the community through African dance. And in that way, I am gone. Astral flight through sound. That sounds really amazing, beautiful, and also so spiritual. And it's those syncopated vibrations that are guiding this next segment. Fodder is a collaborative, improvised album produced by Phonograph Editions. This LP, or aka Recorded Live Performance, features Douglas Kearney's award-winning poetry collection, Buck Studies, and Valjean T's original composition, samples, and improvisation. And together, they create this live sound chemistry which oozes and emanates raw energy. Their collaboration is kind of like a dance improvisation where both artists bring risk, breath, and trust into a shared space. And you can hear Douglas Kearney putting it all out there. And in tandem, Val alternates between conducting and performing and composing. And it's so rich. It's so raw. It sounds like you're a fan, Sada, and so am I. Love Val's work and how she refers to the work as a prayer language. She's gone on to collaborate with musicians really wide-ranging in her worship. She also really takes into her overall practice other studies, other courses of religious thought, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, and, of course, her home traditions of voodoo. The roots of her music and spiritual practice are informed by the liberation story, the singular liberation story of Haiti, and the ritual connections that harken back to Western and Central Africa. You know, it was in honoring the legacy of formerly enslaved populations in the Caribbean, the Americas, and Europe that she was able to find a like-minded spirit in Douglas Kearney, who is also a fellow traveler in that rich tradition of looking to the past to make extraordinary futures. And that would be Flaneur, as my Haitian mother-in-law would say, when we refer to a traveler, that would be Flaneur Douglas Kearney, Minnesota-based poet, performist, and librettist. I love what you're doing here with the Flaneur, the traveling, the trips. And it strikes me as you listen to the album as a whole, spiritually, silently, they have agreed to surrender to each other in their work. And they are trusting that one will not lead where the other will not go. Get on board, everybody, till the place is packed with party people gotten easy to do in this funky place. To the walls is when you got all night long. Got you rocking and the rolling. Get on up, get on down here in the place to be. You gonna work it, man, on the wheel. Make it glide from side to side. Get the notion of the crew. Show you what to move when you gotta jump, jump like dip, baby, to the floor. Take it lower than old Mr. Jones. Go all the way low till, yeah, you get the spirit in that sound goes the drop in your bowls, you gotta see. I'm Douglas Kearney. I'm a poet, performer, librettist, and teacher. I'm Val Gentil, electronic music composer, turntablist, uh, drummer, also teacher from IT. What you're going to hear when you hear the album Fodder is the fifth time that myself and Val have gotten together and performed something. 
it's just us listening, talking, connecting and being together in Portland in August of 2019. There's a vibe in Portland. It's a spiritual thing in Portland. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but Portland's got that vibe. So we met on a project organized in tribute to Sekou Sundiata, the, the late poet. And she had arranged this whole band, crew, tribe of people to come together for that. And so we're doing this piece and Val had her own piece. Val was working with everybody. As we were going through rehearsal, there was a moment when I was performing and doing the kind of drum machine sample box like approach to performance that I try to do. After we did that moment of rehearsal, Val was like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. Right? So she was like, I see what you're doing. And that to me, was like a victory that was like wow okay and so that's i don't know if, if that's always how val thinks about it but i i do feel like that was me auditioning to potentially work with you again i think for me too maybe not a test but just to see how far you know we can push it as as just artists and the second time we met we had to do something and you came to my loft right in brooklyn and you know that of course then I was totally like sure, like, okay, Doug is not afraid. Doug is ready to just go, right? It's not just for one gig because you could just do one gig and it sounds great. But the, the next one, you know, you don't know how that's going to go. The thing too with us, we never have to, to talk about it. You just send me the text. When I read your text, because it's not just like straight, it has all kinds of shapes. It's not just flat, you know, it's, it moves. It's never, you know, like I said, a straight thing this way. It's always like it's moving. It's like the words are here or there. And that creates like a sense of um, movement. And the movement for me is a sound. And I was like, oh, of course, Doug is not afraid. Let's go. <laughs> it's, it's a blessing too to have what I would call like a spiritual artist, you know, connection. And those are hard to, to, to find. You know, but I think that second time it was like, yes, there's a connection here. We don't even have to talk about it. You just send me the, the text and then I'll just send you some beats, just some like you know, ideas. And then we just go. Then from that point on, I was totally convinced of the first time. It was definitely like, hmm, really? He's not afraid. But the second time I was like, OK, let's just go. It's like also like perfect um, artist, you know, companion to take take risk and risk, you know, for us, you know, that's where it's at. And it's great to have like that partner, like, okay, you want to go? Okay, let's go. And then you just keep pushing. And that's how, you know, we've gotten to this point. I, you know, I feel like, especially when we did that gig, of course, you know, the one at Portland, we, did, we barely spoke. We were just like, okay, are you good? Okay, you're good. All right, cool. And then we get on stage and then boom. send Val the words. And each of the times we work together, you'll send me some tracks. But there was a time in Arizona where I didn't hear the tracks until the day of the gig. We always make sure that there's one piece in every set we've done that's just 100% improvised, like not even from a text. We're just up there communicating. We don't rehearse the set, so to speak. Like We'll do a sound check, but the big thing is to not try to reproduce whatever you did in the sound check because, you know, that's when you start chasing instead of you start leading. And that's that's the thing that's also so fresh, you know, working with, you know, with you, Doug. But when we get together live, it's a whole different thing. You know, just like you were saying, I would send you like a track. And then when we live, you know, we do something. We may start there and then we flip it to something else. When we're live, when you're doing your um, like rhythmic stuff, for me, that's like a drummer. So I'm like, you know, right there with you. 
I'm like, oh, okay, okay, okay. He wants to go there. So it's not just just the words. It's how you kind of like um, playing the words like a drum. For me, I feel like it's always 100% improv. Always, because after we do you know, the sound check, we always say, okay, we're not going to do that. Mm. Uh, that loud ass colored silence moan. talk about the the drums the voice becomes a drum and that's your music is always a conversation like like you are always communicating reaching I mean, it just feels like it's just reaching out reaching back reaching forward and you're just drawing all these different sounds and textures like when you're playing skins right or when you move to something electronic or you're processing like all of those are like different languages and different frequencies that you're bringing into it. And so those are the moments where I feel like, oh, okay, I need to be even more percussive now because like you're talking, you're singing, you're making sound in that way. And it's, and it's, it's that constant exchange and that, that just feeling of like, I mean, you know, you were saying earlier that I'm not scared when I'm up there, there's no fear. And so much of that is because the only way I can mess up, the only way I feel like I can mess up when I'm up there with you is to stop listening. Once we're up there and we're hitting, the text is like a suggestion, right? 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 It's a context, but we're transforming that as we go. And that to me is, is incredible. So, I mean, like, yeah, you are a sound chemist because whatever a sound is understood as, you transform it when you play. I have to find a way to interpret that movement, not just the word, because the word is just the word. You know, let's just say love. You know, of course, for love, I could have like a, some pretty sounds because of how we you know, perceive love. But the way you would say love, I have to, I have to think of a different sound for that. Show. A torsion. After Indigo Weather. need somebody or more to ache sweat on some site bloody pearl or dirty spit hopped up for to show who gets eaten rig body up bow bow to breeze a lay's jig and sway to Griggs good fiddling pine deep dusk a spot where stood body anybody who listens to what to what Val and I do understands I think better of the kind of freedom that I want people to feel in these poems that are set all across the page in different ways. Like, like they have to know that I did not plan. However it comes out that performance, that's the spontaneous moment. And, and for me, like Val creates a room to be in, a space to be in. And then I provide the other part of that room. If you're a musician, first, number one, you have to be fearless, especially doing this kind of stuff. Because what I do is super avant-garde. So, you know, that world, you already have to be. <laughs> There's no fear. I mean, you're already in the avant-garde zone. Because I feel like we're not just working. In, I mean, it is art, but we are 
like doing things. We're like creating a better world. You know, we're like creating portals. You know, we're creating different ways to approach our physical reality, right? You know, we can create all these, you know, different worlds to escape to, to help others, right? So it's not just, you know, about the art. So you have to like approach it with no fear in general, whether you're alone or whether you're playing with someone else. You just have to be that kind of artist first, because when you get with that other person that doesn't feel, you know, scared. Yeah, that's that's what it's I think uh, for me it's about. So depending on whatever situation, if it's like working with like, let's say, like a full jazz band, you know, it's the same kind of approach. You have to approach it with just um, with at least some kind of like joy. Because for me, that's what it is. That's what takes out the, the fear of things. You know, you just have to have this kind of more of a joy than fear. A part of the reason why there's no fear is exactly what Val's saying about the joy. Like, I am so happy to be in the room with Val. The moment I said, okay, Val, Val needs to be on this. Like, the, the idea of, oh, we got to do something different because it's recorded. No, the moment I said, Val, can you do this? And Val was like, yeah. I didn't feel like I had to think about, you know, the recording of it anymore. The preparation for these, for the, you know, the significance of the event was the last time Val and I hit. <laughs> like that was the preparation. That spiritual connection, that artistic and creative connection takes all the fear out of it. It's straight creative spiritual connection, straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Such a blessing. Such a blessing. Yeah. And for, and for us, I think risk is a good thing. Yeah. We want to take those risks. It's like, yes, push yourself, push yourself. Yeah. And it makes it a lot more fun. And that's how you get to these places. Don't get to these places by just being safe. You have to push, push things beyond risk. Yes. Beautiful risk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, dance with it. You know, you dance with the risk. You know, that's what we do. You know, we dance with it. Some kind of shadow. It's blood. Or when it would be coming out me, blood, right then, there. I don't even know if what any of them put on me is flesh. But I know it sure as shit isn't skin. Douglas Kearney is a Foundation for Contemporary Arts Cy Twombly Awardee and a Cave Canem Fellow. He's published six books and teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Vajanti is a Haitian-born, Brooklyn-based Afro-electronic music composer, drummer, and anointed turntablist. For our last segment, we submerged into the BMI archives and extracted a recording from our 2015 Jim Rogers Contrarian Lecture. That lecture is an event that typically invites a person of considerable accomplishment and intellectual heft. No one can see me, but I'm doing quotation marks. We invite that person to discuss a contrarian point of view. That contrarian point of view can be controversial naturally. It could be unpopular. It could just be a different idea altogether. Yes, Sada, and who better than Walter Mosley to stand as that first inaugural speaker in 2015 for that event? Walter Mosley is known for his Easy Rollins mysteries, particularly Devil in a Blue Dress, but he has gone on to write countless works, um, we can say over 34, but I suspect that he writes under other pen names as well. He's so prolific. He's also founded an organization to break down the barriers in publishing, and writes sci-fi, writes deeply in essay work, short story work, and has published a graphic novel. His nonfiction often turns to concepts of class and the shell game of inclusion and exclusion. His thesis for this contrarian lecture, The White Race, does not exist. Here is Walter Mosley, back in 2015. So I decided that I'd talk to you tonight about a lie. 
a lie that almost everyone accepts as truth, a belief system that is not questioned, but if it were, the whole world would change, opening a door into a space that might, counterintuitively for many, deliver us from doom. The connection this talk has to the university is to me obvious because almost every school in America perpetuates this lie, and it is only through true investigation and education that we can dispel its foul effects. This lie can be compressed down into a single word, a color, white. Supposedly in nature, the composition of all visible light. In political and social reality, however, it is the source of a great blindness. It is my argument that the white race does not exist, has never existed. And the promulgation of any idea of race in the modern world is, consciously or not, the attempt to dominate economically, which is to say, absolutely. And so I begin the talk with a simple question. Who am I? I am an American from the soles of my feet uh, to the hair that once adorned my bald head. An American whose dark-hued ancestors were stolen from their lives and cultures and piled into the holds of ships like so many sacks of skin. An American whose Jewish ancestors stowed their lives into the holds of later vessels running from a thousand years of anti-Semitism that was soon to blossom into Holocaust. An American whose ancestors walked across the frozen waters from Asia to North America discovering a new world, a world that would one day be stolen from their descendants. I am an English-speaking American whose language is also whispering French from my Louisiana relatives and sublime Spanish from the Mexicans and Mexican-Americans I rub shoulders with growing up in Southern California. A man whose music is the blues that became rock and roll and hip-hop jazz that is the bastard child and the heir of the unconsecrated coupling between Africa and Europe. Who am I? I am a man formed by history, but oddly lacking in a clear perspective of the past. A man with so much to me that there is no clear identity to grab onto or to claim. I might be related to Thomas Jefferson or any of 10,000 masters who raped and sometimes even loved their slaves. Who am I? I am the target of admin and pollsters, census takers, and the evening news. To some, I am the enemy, both inside this nation and internationally. And to some, I am a brother. I can be at the same time invisible and yet profiled, counted and yet forgotten, imprisoned by circumstance and yet declared free by one of the great documents of political history. I am prejudged for my skin color, gender, age, education, and even for some things that I've actually done wrong. I'm a minor shareholder in the great corporation of America and therefore responsible for everything good and bad that we've done in the name of business, things we did before I was born and events that shall occur after I'm gone. I am the amalgamation of all the ignorance, ambitions, yearnings for freedom, and religions of the world. I am, have been, brainwashed so many times that innocence is second nature to me. Contradictorily, America is what I am, but not my history, not my identity. I am a new man almost every day. I and mine were once colored, Negro, black, Afro-American, African-American, brother, sister, Uncle Tom, revolutionary, good one, bad one, convict, malingerer, miracle and so much more. In the end, I can say with conviction that I am many men and many Americans. Through my veins runs 10,000 years of history that touches every continent, deity, and crime known to humanity. This, this history is not composed of false accounts of the past. It is the blood and the beat and the light that passes through my mind and yours. I am your sibling, whether you know it or not, whether you accept me or not. We, known and unknown to each other, form an identity that I can express but still not know, not completely. And for this state of being, I am infinitely grateful because it means that I can be a part of something greater than the individual while still I am at home in my heart. I am a black man. This is the truth. This is a lie. This is an oversimplification. This is a confused notion. This is a declaration of war. It defines me, certainly, within the labyrinthine political, economic, and social definitions of American culture. I am a black man, but look at me. How can I make such a bold statement without some twist in my voice, some irony? My skin is surely not black. 
not dark brown or, or even medium brown. The, the only way to see it in this light would be in context with other colors in the same scheme. How can you call yourself a black man? I'm often asked by people outside the system of American racism. Sometimes they say other people surely don't recognize you as black. They think that this is a political statement I'm making, that, that I'm identifying myself with ancestors that I don't want to let go of. But this is not true on any level. I don't have to let go of my culture because it was ripped from the minds of my ancestors by European slavers here and colonized beyond any recognition on the mother continent. I didn't have to come up with the idea that I'm a black man in America. I just had to walk down the wrong street at twilight and spying me from a block away. The police or, or one of their assistants were happy to stop me and remind me that I have no business in that neighborhood. Race is not a color. That's stupid. Race, as I have said, as I will keep saying, is an economic coding system that hopefully has begun to outgrow its relevance. Through intermarriage, music culture, sports, and the unbelievably slow response to the outcome of the Civil War, our people, especially the youth, have seen the blurring of the lines between the peoples of color, red, white, black, or other. People who share oppression of identity in the modern world, at least the modern world that I live in, don't poke their stick at the corpse of the obvious. But even taking this argument into account, I, I do not deny that, that calling me a black man, but me calling myself a black man, is somehow a travesty. I come to this realization through a slightly circuitous route. That is, one day, I realized that people asking me why I define myself by color rarely or ever ask themselves the same question. I mean, what is a white man? They are pink, tan, olive, ruddy, freckled, Milky, chalk-skinned people. They are blonde, black-haired, brunette, uh, red-headed. They have every color eye, gray and blue and, and, and green. And So-called white people have a broad palette of views and features, but in my experience, it's rare to meet a person who denies his or her whiteness. Why would they? People blame me for perpetuating racism by my self-identification, and to some degree this is true. Me accepting the color coding of the plantation owners and the factory owners and the men who stole the land that they made my ancestors slave on, to a certain degree me accepting their explanation of my existence maintains their claim to power. But blaming a black man for his golden chains and earthy use, his unaccountable ahistorical existence and deep-seated, unfathomable rage is like blaming a housefrau for global warming because she uses a spray can once a year. She is contributing to the problem, but she is not the cause. Not nearly. No, racism, race itself is not caused by people like me calling themselves what they have been called since they were born, since their great, 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 great grandparents were born. Racism is born of white people accepting that appellation as fact. On the day that so-called white people stop recognizing themselves by that terminology, on that day the linchpin of racism will be pulled out and the entire prejudicial mechanism of the new world will grind to a halt. And I'm not talking about political correctness here. I'm not saying that all we have to do is stop using certain words like white and black. No, I am saying that we have to strive for a place where people honestly don't recognize race as color, dialect, gender, or any other physically manifested feature. The denial of race is not enough. The idea has to be uh, to be disproved and discarded, eradicated from the minds of the responsible, educated, and or sophisticated member of society. Years ago, I imagined in one of my political monographs, by the way, that nobody ever reads, uh, what race was in the eyes of any black woman, sister, Negro, African-American on these shores. Race for us black people sequestered on the isolationist outpost of America was simple to define and impossible to avoid. Race had a white face. 
Race was the boss at work, the president and his courts and his Congress. Radio voices, even Amos and Andy. TV and movie stars. Race was the concept of beauty in magazines and on billboards. Race was the policeman and the laws he executed. Race was prisons and cotton fields and economic disparity that was presented as a reality that cannot, that should not be denied. Black faces were rarely seen, and when they were, they were barely human. Shiftless, comedic, bestial, and most honestly spiteful. We had no history, were not a part of history, and could not in any meaningful way contribute to history as it unfolded in the richest, most powerful country in the history of the world. How does one so oppressed, so isolated, begin to shatter the false notion that has oppressed her more than any physical weapon or law? One would expect the solution to be akin to the Gordian knot, impossible to break without terrible violence, but no, the answer to the refutation of racial stereotyping is simple. All you have to do is look in the mirror. It's wonderful to think that your university could be a mirror, you know. It dawned on me one day that any man, woman, or child from any race or clime, when they peered into the looking glass, all see the same thing. That is, they see the self. This identity is beyond race, gender, language, and even history. When you look in the mirror, race becomes a minor detail within the panoramic, vivid image of you. Holding that image in mind and imagining the possibility of that image in the minds of others, we can begin to see how the dictates of racial orientation are superfluous to the roots of identity. White Joe sees Joe in the mirror. Black Jamal sees Jamal in the mirror. Therefore, Joe equals Jamal. America was once a land isolated from its peer nations by vast oceans and the huge expanse of unconquered sky, but no longer. Our science has crushed the world down into a minimum of 24 hours to traverse. It has also transformed history into moments rather than centuries. In Vermont, they used to say, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. Today, we say, if you don't like the world, give it a day. It'll get worse. At one time... America was a country that was removed and simple in its prejudices. The red man had been defeated and imprisoned. The, the black man had been put down, his life codified and his true image erased. And the brown man from south of the border, he was nothing to worry about. The rest of the world, it was too far away to be of any consequence. We fought two world wars within three decades and hardly one shot was fired on our shores. The idea of race itself has lost any true significance in the modern world. Today, the black man has to consider Rwanda, the former Yugoslavia, and China's polluted rivers before saying uh, that an action was taken to deprive him of his rights, his humanity. The white man has to wonder who owns the lands that have been traditionally his domain, and the red woman might still get her day in court. The world is changing rapidly, whirling out of control. Black children soldiers kill black men and black mothers. White captains of industry close on white high school dropouts. Women deny girls, and there is no true Hispanic. Our lives are run by technology and money while we talk about color and gender and the way someone rolls her R's. We live in a fallacy, a virtual world created by a system that only needs for us to toil and die under its rule. And it doesn't matter if you call yourself black or white, Jew or Christian, chosen or defiled. What you think, what you feel is true does not matter if you haven't come to terms with the image, the self in the mirror. If the so-called white American impregnates the so-called Asian woman from the example above, then the child that results will be his child and hers. This simple fact eradicates any notion of a separation of races. If a black man pays taxes to a government run by gun dealers and oil moguls, and that money is used to buy guns to kill other black men on other continents, then that taxpayer, regardless of so-called race, has murdered his brother, our brother. If I light a fire, the smoke fills our air. Race is a fiction, an outmoded term that is used by the systems that nominate to separate and conquer us, and it has been successful. As long as I'm a black man, a white man, a Chinese woman, or a Jew, I am removed from my species, my genetic identity, and destiny. What we need is redemption, an old-fashioned baptism ritual where the one joins the many, where the word human means all women and men. We have to eradicate the concept of race. If you believe that the word is inaccurate, misleading, and wrong, then you have to make that realization part of your everyday dialogue, worldview, and belief system. You, especially so-called white people, 
have to deny the tag of race. You are a citizen, as are all people you know and meet, never know and never meet. Our race is based on an overwhelmingly internal sameness between all human beings. The slant of our eyes, the pigmentation of our skin, the texture of our hair is the very least of us. You must still ask why I put weight on so-called white people denying their race and replacing it with the notion of humanity. It is because the notion of a white world has brought down all the oppression on all the other so-called colored races of the modern world. Our identity was taken from us where the white identity, albeit unconsciously, was created to express, uh, for the express purpose of domination. When an idea or an ideal was raised to the level of respect, a white face was put on it. From black cowboys to brown curly-headed Jesus, the, the imagined white world took our successes and turned them against us. From blues to jazz to rock and roll, we were disenfranchised. The Arapaho didn't see themselves as Utes or Mohawks. The Puerto Rican knows that he's not a Mexican. If I give up my so-called blackness, your so-called whiteness will still be held over and against me. But if you stop being white, the course of history will be instantly and irrevocably changed. It's like we are two armed camps at an armistice at the end of a civil war. You attack me first, but we're just the same. All I'm asking is that you lower your automatic assault rifle before I put down my switchblade. I believe that you could afford this gesture and that in, in, in being offered this token, I will be able to begin to give up the resentment built over 500 years of war waged upon peoples who were in reality no different than their attackers. Race is based on gold and cotton and rice, on tobacco and oil, on the perpetuity of wage slavery and death. Lower your claim to a fictive identity, and you will see that there's a world out there where suffering and riches are shared and dealt with, where identity centers on the individual and not the color-coded chains of capitalism. Thank you. Yes, to cease to believe in whiteness as a standard of power is a heady risk. I often suspect there is a sense of good-natured humor awarding someone for their curmudgeonly insight mm -hmm. when we appoint them this title of contrarian. Mm -hmm. And while, yes, the wit and the agile charm of the raconteur is undeniable, it has always been clear to me that in his nonfiction, like Baldwin and like Hooks, Walter Mosley is not playing. Absolutely not. He did not come to play. We hope that you not only enjoyed this episode of Black Mountain Radio, but that you found meditation in it. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers, Carol C. Harder, Black Mountain Institute. Sada Artis is the mastermind, host, and curator. And today's magical, mystical, wise, lovely guest host is Erica Vitalazar. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our associate producers. Scott Dickensheets is our editor. Anthony Ferris is our production assistant. Phil Corbett is our sound mixer. Art by Jesse Jung. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. And graphic design by Lily Allen. Special thanks goes out to David Figler, Douglas Kearney, Val Jonti, and Walter Mosley. Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute. Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, Kristen Radke, Summer Tomad, Michael Ursell, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Big thanks to our sponsors at Zappos who helped make this episode possible and who contribute to Las Vegas' creative communities. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. A special shout out to our KUNV engineer, Kevin Croft.
so we can come back on the air soon, please consider supporting this project and all we do as a friend of the Black Mountain Institute. We welcome volunteers and advice and urge anyone who is able to go to blackmountaininstitute.org and make a donation of $10 a month. In addition to a heavy fallout of cosmic gratitude, you'll get a subscription to The Believer, a thank you in its pages, and other tokens of our appreciation. Learn more at blackmountainradio.org. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Sada, for being here, who you are, being present. I thank you.